Good morning. I am Pastor Jay. It is a privilege to be up. Thank you, choir. What a beautiful setup for a passage in the book of Colossians that we're looking at today. I would like to invite you, let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're currently in a sermon series in this letter. Here's what we've learned so far, just a couple recaps. Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters in what we call our New Testament. They range from longest to shortest. This is a letter written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to a young congregation, meaning a newer church start, in the ancient city of Colossae, which was near Laodicea, which today we would call Western Turkey. This was a stronghold of the early church in Western Turkey. Today, Turkey is 99% Islamic, but in the first century, it was a very strong center for the early church. Colossians was written to this newer group of Christians, but there was a problem. And the problem was this. This was a new congregation facing a dangerous false gospel that was starting to seep into the church. Now, this is not unusual in the history of the church. Many churches start out strong. Many denominations start out strong. Many pastors start out strong. Only to be derailed through sexual immorality and or false doctrine. And so Paul's theme in this short letter, this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, is the identity of the real Jesus, the resume of the real Jesus, or we might call it in the language we've been using, the supremacy of Christ. One of the ways churches get, I mean, this is a very urgent letter as you read it, if you know it. And one of the ways churches get off track so easily and this one was doing this, is by following a false gospel or turning to a counterfeit Jesus. And the, the, the problem with counterfeit Jesuses in history is they don't come announcing themselves as counterfeit Jesuses. It's usually a slow, gradual drift into a false doctrine and a false concept of Jesus. But some of the most common counterfeit Jesuses right now on the American landscape would be the health and wealth Jesus, the Jesus who came just to promise you health and wealth. And that all things would always be good. Another false Jesus is the LGBTQ Jesus activist. Another false Jesus right now is the climate warrior Jesus. Churches get off on these tangents and it gets them off the real gospel. Paul warns us in his letter to the 2 Corinthians. We call it 2 Corinthians. Chapter 11. There is another Jesus and there is another gospel. Meaning, be careful. Be aware. And of course, the great danger of being captive to a false Jesus is that you will become a false disciple, ultimately. And if you continue to follow that course, will perish in judgment and hell. That brings us to chapter 2, verses 26, I mean, verses 6 to 23. This is a great passage. In these verses, Paul is reminding us what true disciples look like. So wherever you're at on your spiritual journey today, whether you know Christ or you don't know Christ or you're somewhere in between, you're not sure yet, here is a passage that brings great clarity about what a true disciple looks like. That's why I asked Ben Ackert to read from John 15 because it's a parallel passage telling us and showing us what a real disciple looks like. In this section, 
It is filled with both great encouragement and great warning. As Paul shows us what true disciples look like. Not only what they believe, but how they behave. That's the point. So with that, let's dive in. We'll do a deep dive here. Three things that are going to characterize true disciples of Jesus that Paul is going to lay out pretty much just in systematic order. One, true disciples know who Jesus is. You can't get saved and have great confusion on that. Secondly, they know who they are. And thirdly, they know the dangers around them. And so with that, let's dive in. Again, this is just a tremendous passage in Paul's letter here. First of all, true disciples know who Jesus is. Paul begins with a very clear declaration about the true Jesus. And it's in verse 6, just the first phrase. Therefore, so he's, Paul has, uses that word a lot because he's always summing up things. He's a very logical writer. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord. And pause right there. He is writing to those who are not just religious, not just attending church. He is writing to those who are professing to be followers of Jesus as Lord. Now look at the word Lord there. That's in English, obviously. The Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in Greek, but not classical Greek, common Greek, street Greek. Call it coin Greek, common Greek. The word translated Lord, there's a reason I'm going to tell you this is the Greek word kurios. It shows up a lot in our New Testament. The very common word in our New Testament, kurios. Okay, why is that so, so, such a big deal? Why is it so significant? Here's why. Because this has very deep roots in the Old Testament. And it says something. It's a signal to the early church and to the culture around them. And many of you know, I mean, to, to just paint this really quick, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic, but mostly in Hebrew. And God's name in Hebrew, as some of you know from Exodus, is the word Yahweh. The word Yahweh, that Hebrew name for God, shows up over 6,000 times in our Hebrew Old Testament. Now fast forward to the 3rd century BC. Alexander the Great had conquered the world. And the world was shifting over to Greek, specifically Koine Greek, heavily at this time. And in that, it became kind of the vernacular of the whole Mediterranean world. And more and more new Christians spoke less and less Hebrew. And so around the third century in Alexandria, Egypt, a large decision was made. We don't know exactly how it was made, but a decision was made to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek, Koine Greek. We call that the Septuagint because of the tradition that 70 men did it. We don't know that for sure, but it's called the Septuagint. Here's the key. The Septuagint, that Greek Old Testament, became the Bible of the early church. A lot of Christians don't know that. When you read the Gospels, when you read the sermons of the early apostles, not always, but frequently, they weren't quoting the Hebrew. When they would quote the Old Testament, they would quote the Septuagint. Now here's, I'm pull the dots together here. When it came time to translate Yahweh, when the translators of the Septuagint, when it came time, what do we do with these 6,000 occurrences of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh? How do we translate that into Greek? They chose the Greek word kurios. 
And so if you go to the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, 6,000 plus times you will see kurios. It was a word that meant Yahweh, God, deity. And so come to this phrase in our New Testament. When the New Testament writers apply the word kurios to Jesus, what they're saying is, here is Yahweh in human flesh. That's exactly what they were saying. Since the Septuagint was the common Bible of the day, and since they quoted it regularly and it had kurios in it over 6,000 times, when they read kurios in the New Testament, when Paul would say, Jesus is kurios, what he meant was, this is Yahweh in human flesh. It's also worth noting that Paul's reference to Jesus as Lord builds on what he wrote in chapter 1 about Jesus. If you go back chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, you have what we called one of these mountain peaks of Christology. That's a big fancy word for doctrine of Christ. And there's several of these mountain peaks in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament. And one of these is Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. So what we read in verse 6 of chapter 2 just simply builds on what Paul already wrote. I'm going to back up for just a moment and reread something we preached from a couple weeks ago, verses 15 through verse 18. He, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is head of the body, the church. He, the Son, is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or have the preeminence. Supremacy is another translation. Supremacy over history. Supremacy over political elections. Supremacy over pandemics. Supremacy over money, over life, over death, over our children. Now, when it comes to this kind of language, the verbs being used, we have this in English. We would call these indicative. What's an indicative verb? And this is important to understand Paul's way of writing. An indicative verb is an announcement of something that's a fact. It's not a command. It's a fact. So when Paul writes all these things about he's the image of the invisible God, these are all written in the indicative. These are announcing theological facts. These are facts that are literally true. Now in, go back to chapter 2, verse 6 and following. Paul's indicative verbs start to be followed now by a whole string of what we would call imperatives. We have this in English too. An imperative is not a statement of fact anymore. It's not an announcement of something. It is a command. And this is a very common methodology in Paul. Meaning, indicatives must always lead to imperatives or you don't have biblical religion. If you're just announcing stuff and there's no, well then this is what you should behave like, Whatever you have, you don't have biblical Christianity. And so in verse 6, the second part, after Paul talks about those of you who've received Jesus as Lord, as Yahweh, now Paul gives an imperative. So walk in him. Or the NIV says, continue to live your lives in him. And that is why this is a bit of a transitional section here. After a whole bunch of indicatives, we now start getting a bunch of imperatives. And we see this commonly in Paul. 
We see this in Ephesians, in Philippians, you see this in Galatians, you see this in Romans. Paul begins always with hefty doses of indicatives, stating doctrinal truths, theological facts that are real. And then his letters begin to shift based on that to imperatives. If this is true, therefore, this is how you should behave. This is how a true disciple should conduct themselves. One of the commentaries we're recommending during the series by Doug Moo, who teaches New Testament at Wheaton Graduate School, he says, when you look at verses 6 through 15 of chapter 2 here, you are coming to the heart of Colossians, which shows us, he says, what true disciples look like. And Dr. Moo points out that the command in chapter 2, verse 6, so walk in him or continue to live in him, is the first, hear this, of 20 Nine commands that extend all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. So the point is clear enough. Young people, the point is clear enough. Kids, adults, the point is very clear. True disciples obey Jesus. False disciples do not. That's exactly what's being said. Reminiscent of James, chapter 2, verse 17, which says, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by works, is dead. And the sad reality is there are many sit in Bible preaching churches all over the fruited plain who enjoy listening to preaching, who enjoy singing great hymns, who enjoy anthems, who enjoy fellowship, but they've never surrendered because they're not obeying Jesus and the evidence is there. Paul now tells believers how to deepen their intimacy in the real Jesus as he begins into this whole list of imperatives. The rest of verse 6 into verse 7, he uses the terminology of being rooted. Therefore, as you've received Jesus Christ as Lord, walk in him, continue in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The terminology there, look at there, being rooted, brings to mind the kind of person David describes in Psalm 1, like a tree that is rooted by a stream of water. So if you're newer to Christian faith, or even if you're not, the question is, well, how do you deepen your intimacy? How do you deepen your roots? And that is, you go back to the same disciplines that God's people have used for centuries. This is not rocket science. This is the same disciplines that God's people have always used. The disciplines in and of themselves, by the way, don't make you holy. But what they do is they put you in the path where God changes you. Disciplines like daily Bible reading, absolutely essential. Bible study. Those are separate from biblical meditation. Meditation is where you take a small chunk of scripture and you chew on it. That begins to change your, how you think. Also becoming part of a church family. Being thankful. Praying. Small group fellowship. These are the ways we begin to deepen our intimacy in Christ. And then notice verses 9 and 10. Paul is now going to circle back one more time to a massive indicative one of his strongest statements on who Jesus is anywhere in the New Testament. Verse 9. For in him, that is Jesus, look at the language, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Some people have said, well, the New Testament never says Jesus is God in that kind of language. You couldn't get a whole lot clearer than verse 9. In him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I don't know how else you can say it a whole lot clearer than that. 
Which is exactly why Jesus in John chapter 8 told a group of Pharisees one day as he was combating with some religious leaders. He said, unless you believe I am, there he was claiming again the Yahweh title from Exodus 3. Jesus says, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. So there is something very important about believing that Jesus is God in human flesh. Now, let me add a caveat. Just believing that doesn't mean you're automatically saved. I can say that by quoting or referring to Satan or his demons or others who have affirmed that but not really been converted. You can believe Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. In fact, Satan knows that to be true, but he's not a believer. He's not redeemed. The demons are not redeemed. So there's no way to get to heaven apart from that, but just believing that doesn't mean you're automatically on your way to heaven. But true disciples are very clear. Jesus is Yahweh in human flesh. He is the Lord God. Secondly, true disciples know who they are. Verses 11 to 15. Paul, Paul you've got to love the way Paul writes. He's so logical. He's so clear. And this just flows right along. Now, there's two things true disciples know about themselves. So I'm going to break these down because Paul sort of breaks it down here. First, they know the bad news about themselves. Then they know a bunch of good news about themselves. I'm talking again about those who are true born-again Christians. So here's, here's the bad news that every true believer knows about himself. Verse 13, the first part. And you, again, Paul's writing to those who are truly saved, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So the first thing every true disciple knows, doesn't matter if they're six years old, 16 years old, 26, 96, if you know Christ is Lord, the first thing you know about yourself is that prior to salvation, prior to conversion, you were dead in your sin. The original Greek word dead means Dead, in your sin, dead, unresponsive, completely unresponsive. It's the, you, the, you know the truth of Romans chapter 3, that no one seeks God. This whole concept we've talked about of a seeker movement that's been a big thing in American evangelicalism for the last 50, 60 years is a misnomer biblically because Paul's very clear. No one seeks God unless God's seeking them, but no one on their own just seeks God. Now, if you're newer to the, to the Bible, newer to the faith, Here's just a quick summary of what the Bible teaches about us in our natural state, our unsaved state. The Bible says we were born dead in sin, unresponsive, blind spiritually, slaves to sin, unable to seek God, unwilling to seek God. Some of you know the name Martin Luther, a German monk who lived 500 years ago. God raised him up. Luther had great strengths. He had great weaknesses. Luther wrote a lot, he preached a lot, God used him powerfully in a movement called the Reformation that changed the whole direction of Christianity, especially in Western culture. But Luther said of all the things he wrote and all the things he preached and all the things that he described, his most important book, according to his own testimony, was one he wrote in 1525 called The Bondage of the Will. I would encourage you to read it. It's not the easiest to read, but it is a powerful book. And Luther understood the bad news and that we were dead in our sins prior to salvation. And he puts it in ways that just are so powerful. He writes this in The Bondage of the Will. To say that man does not seek God 
is the same, is the same as saying man cannot seek God. So you see that free will does not exist and nothing good or, or upright is left in man. Again, he's talking about the unsaved, the unconverted. He is declared to be unrighteous, ignorant of God, and a despiser of God. That's what true disciples know. They know that that is what they were called out of. True disciples know there can be no salvation. Hear this. Young people, hear this. True disciples know there can be no salvation unless God wakes the sinner up to the utter evilness of their sin. There's no way around that. That is essential. And whenever God has brought revival in church history, it is always accompanied by this deep awareness of sin. I love reading firsthand counts of revival. I've been doing a lot of that this last year. And a classic example is what took place in the First Great Awakening in New England. And some of you know the name Jonathan Edwards. Now, unfortunately, some people only know the name because of his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is only one of hundreds of sermons he preached. He also preached a lot on heaven. But Jonathan Edwards actually was an eyewitness to one of the greatest revivals in American history. He lived right in the middle of it, called the First Great Awakening, and where he was preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts. It was going on right around him. And he wrote a small book, I just reread it recently, called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And these are his own eyewitness accounts of what he saw going on right around him. And what's interesting is that Edwards says to be truly saved, it's because, he said, watching these people who were truly converted. And he, and he said, I saw false conversions too, but those who were really saved and it took hold and it stuck. He said, one of the commonalities is those people were first seized by a hatred of their sin. He writes this, and again, he's an eyewitness of hundreds who came to Christ right around him. Persons who were awakened with a sense of their miserable condition by the nature of the danger that they were in perishing eternally. They were brought to reflect on their sin in their lives and had something of a terrifying sense of God's anger and had a secret hope of appeasing God's anger and making up for the sins they have committed. Close quote. Edward said, that's what I saw in people who were truly born again, is that holy hatred of their sin. And that's one of the things Paul says. True disciples... First of all, they know the bad news. They were dead, dead in sin, slaves to sin. Now, he's going to change here and switch, and he's going to say, true disciples also know some really good news, at least three incredible things that will encourage any true believer here today. So here they are. One, true believers, true disciples, number one, know it is God who made them alive in Christ. Look at verse 13b. Paul's very clear they understand. If you know Jesus, you know your wretched heart. You know what he called you out of. You know the swamp and the darkness that he summoned you out of. And you know it was him, not you. Verse 13. And you were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made him alive together. Depending on your translation. Or God made alive together with him. God made them alive in Christ. So true disciples know it is God who gave them their saving faith. True disciples know that if they have a hunger for God, if they're seeking God, it's because God was first seeking them. They know the truth of Romans 9.18. 
that God has mercy on some sinners and not others. And for some reason, true believers, they know God had mercy on them. And he took mercy on them. And he halted their direction and turned them around. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. If you've never read it, it's a great autobiography. But Lewis says, basically, look it, I was in my early 30s. I was a happy atheist, for the most part, teaching at Oxford. Until the day, Lewis says, I love this phrase, that the great transcendental interferer messed with my life. Now think of that phrase. The great transcendental interferer interfered, got in my way, and changed my direction. That's what true believers know. That's what true disciples know. They know it wasn't something I was looking for. It wasn't anything I was doing. But the transcendental interferer interfered, turned me around, gave me a hunger for himself, and drew me to himself. That's the first great piece of news that true believers know about. It was God who made them alive. The second thing they know is that they have complete, total forgiveness of all their sins. This is an incredible thing that the world is so hungry for. 13c, the last part of 13, and verse 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Right there separates biblical religion from every other religion. Because no other religion teaches you can have every single sin wiped out with a simple declaration like Jesus is Lord. And yet, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Now, some people think, oh, that means every sin from today backwards, but then i got to keep confessing to make sure I have everything confessed perfectly for every sin going forward. The Bible says, no, no, no. Doctrine of justification by faith is the moment I repent and believe on Jesus alone, by his shed blood alone, by faith alone, every single sin I've ever committed, am committing, or will commit is forgiven. That is what separates biblical Christianity from everything else. And that's what Paul's saying here. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, you can lay in your bed at night knowing, if you know Christ, everything is forgiven. Every single rotten, evil thing you have thought about, imagined, fantasized about, committed, or done, is forgiven if you know Christ. All our trespasses. How? By canceling, verse 14, the record of debt. There was a debt that stood over you as an unbeliever that stood against us with its legal demands. And how did God do this? By nailing it to the cross. He transferred the, the biblical word imputed. It's a banking term. Your sin to the Savior, and he imputed the Savior's righteousness to your account. That's the second great thing that true believers, true disciples know. Back to Martin Luther for a minute. He had this kind of strange dream, he tells us once, 500 years ago. He said right after he was converted, shortly afterwards, he had a dream in which the devil came to him with a report card about his life and said, look at the record of your sins. You have no right to claim to be right with God. Look at you, you're a horrible sinner. And Luther said for a moment in his dream, he was despondent and he started to slide into despair until it hit him and he turned around and he said, it's true. Every word of what you say in that report card is true, but right across that report card, W-R-I-T-E, right across it, the blood of Jesus, God's son, 
cleanses us from every sin. He said, write that across that. The blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from every sin. That is biblical justification by faith alone. The third thing he says true disciples know. They know it is God who made him alive and turned him around. They know they have complete forgiveness of all sin, past, present, and future. And the third thing they know is they're no longer under Satan's control, 15. Again, Paul's very clear. He, dis, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross or triumphing over them in him. He, the language here, he disarmed. Literally, he stripped them. The, the imagery here is very clear. It's of a Roman military defeat where you take the opposing army who was defeated and you take away their stuff, their armor and their swords and their weapons and you march them through the main street and make a spectacle out of them. That is exactly what the cross did to Jesus. That's the imagery. So the bottom line, young people, kids, the bottom line is this. True Christians know they have a new identity in Christ and they have a new power that lives inside them because they are one with Christ and the Holy Spirit is alive in them. That means they're freed from a life of confusion and destructive habits and despair. And they're freed to a life of forgiveness, joy, forgiving others, purpose, meaning, and hope. That is why they can rejoice. That is what true disciples know. They know the bad news. They know how bad it was. They know the dark swamp they were called and summoned out of. And they know the glorious spiritual reserves and standing they were called into. Lastly, true disciples know the dangers around them. And this is going to serve as our summons this morning. Our summons is avoiding these three dangers. So here is the summons. Three dangers at the end of this section that Paul says, beware of if you truly know Christ. Number one, it's the danger of not obeying Christ and proving to be a false disciple. That comes in verse 6 where he says, those who say Jesus is Lord continue to live in him or continue, again, an imperative, continue to walk in him, which means it's possible not to. How many times? Have you run into somebody, sadly, tragically, who made a dramatic profession of faith in Christ as a young person, as a kid, as a teenager, and you bump into them later in life and there's nothing there anymore spiritually? So this is a reminder that first danger is the danger of not continuing on. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or in Matthew 7, Jesus puts it this way, Not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Notice that last phrase. Who is it that will go to the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father. That doesn't mean obedience saves us. It means obedience is the proof we're saved. Hunger. Hunger. Things that once seemed crazy are now things we crave. Jonathan Edwards, go back to him again for a minute, one of his classics, absolute classics that he wrote, 
was called Religious Affections. And he has a paragraph in there that just, I can't find a paragraph in church history that puts it quite this crisp and clear. If there is no great and abiding change in people who think they have experienced a work of salvation, they are deluded. If there is little of any change in your bad habits or dispositions, you may well question the reality of your conversion. That's not to send people into despair. That's to send them into reflective thinking to make sure, as Paul said, examine yourself. Why? To make sure you're in the faith. Don't just coast in and coast out. Don't get, go to church, get some religious goodies and go home. Make sure it's real. It's taken hold. There's roots there and it's growing deep. And there's fruit, not perfection, but there's fruit, that there's change year after year. So the first danger is the danger of not obeying and proving eventually down the road of being a false disciple. The second danger, he says here, is in verse 18. And that is, don't let anybody disqualify you. He is not speaking of salvation here. He is speaking of loss of reward for the true believer. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. How would that happen? Well, they might insist on asceticism. What's that? Extreme self-denial. And worship of angels. Or going into great detail about visions. Or being puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. There's all kinds of ways this happens. But if somebody who's truly saved starts getting off on one of these tangents, they may lose reward. Again, this is not talking about salvation. True Christian cannot lose their salvation. Let me say it again. A true born-again Christian cannot lose their salvation. Why? Because salvation is a God project from beginning to end. It starts with predestination in eternity past, and it goes through a whole series of things between God doing that and then regenerating and drawing and saving and securing the person. You can't lose that. But what you can lose if you know Christ is reward someday in the afterlife. And it's very clear there will be a day when Christians are evaluated by Christ and some will gain and some will lose. It won't be a level playing field, so to speak, when it comes to reward. That's what he's talking about there. So there's a danger of losing reward. The third danger is being a slave to man-made rules. My goodness, Christianity is full of man-made rules. They're all over the place. He's very clear. Here's some of the man-made rules that were starting to derail this congregation. Verses 20 down to verse 23. If, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, in other words, if you're truly saved by his shed blood, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. And asceticism, again, severe denial of the body, severity to the body, but they're of no value in, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's, that, that, by the way, is why if you're a monk and you go out and sit on a pole in the desert, you're going to have no less of a battle with lust, sexual lust, than if you're a laborer in the city right in the midst of much activity. Because the problem isn't the external, it's the internal. And so beware of being made slaves to these man-made rules which don't affect the internal. They just get us off our focus on Christ. So three dangers. These, that's our summons this morning. The danger of not obeying, falling off, 
proving to be a false disciple, the danger of losing reward, and the danger here of being slave to a bunch of man-made rules. Here's what Paul longs for. Ready? Paul longs for every single person who is truly born again. A lot of us here this morning. Some of us aren't, but a lot of us are. He longs, if you know Christ, he longs for you to grasp how supreme Jesus is. I mean, language falls short of even how to, how to say that. How supreme he is. And he longs for you to know your identity in Christ. What you have in Christ, your spiritual resources and reserves, the power that is available to you. Why? Because it helps you become a thankful person. It helps you become a hope-filled person. It helps you become a forgiving person. And it helps you to know how much you have to draw on in Christ and what is available to you. Simple parable, but it's like this. Here's the tragedy of it all. It's someone, for, for, for a Christian not to access all that is a little bit like the guy who scraped up all the money he could because he needed a ticket on a ship across the Atlantic. So he scrapes up the money, he buys the ticket, this two or three week journey across the Atlantic. At the end of the journey, the captain is strolling around on the main deck and sees the poor guy laying in a chase lounge chair, freezing. Captain says, you look hungry and weak. How, how, are you okay? And the guy says, well, I'm, I'm doing okay. Considering I've been sleeping out in this chair for the last three weeks, eating crackers, getting sunburned. No. And then he learns to his horror as the captain explains to him that his ticket price included a beautiful room, shows, great fine dining, and an unending buffets. And he didn't find that out to the very end of the journey. And yet, it's exactly the way a lot of Christians sadly live. They don't know what they have. They don't know what they own. And so today, as we look at the exposition of this text, the question is, are you born again? And if you are, are you accessing, leaning into, and utilizing the power of the Holy Spirit, your union with Christ, and all that is available to you to live a life that is not mired down in despair and despondency and falling apart, but staying faithful to Christ as Lord. This is real stuff. It's not religious mumbo-jumbo. And that is why Paul is so passionate about communicating it to God's people. Father, we are very thankful for Paul and that you inspired him by your Holy Spirit to write a letter like this. And so I pray for those who know Christ here that they would afresh know who they are, take advantage of it, that they would understand they're forgiven of all sin. They have access to power to conquer destructive habits that may be derailing them and their marriage. And Father, I also pray for those here this morning who are not yet saved, not born again, not yielded to Christ, maybe religious, maybe they prayed a prayer years ago, but it never took hold. That today would be the day that they bow the knee to Christ and cry out, 
I want Christ more than anything, more than video games, more than money, more than career, more than fame, more than sexual pleasure, more than anything else. I want Christ. We pray our church would see more conversions, more baptisms as you march forward and the kingdom of God advances. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.